We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, so if you want to pull out your Bibles and turn there with me, uh, I, I will pray for us, but I think one of the things that's going to be fabulous about heaven is that we're going to be there, the Bible tells us, with all kinds of people from all different tribes and tongues and nations, and we're all going to be praising Jesus together, which is pretty, pretty incredible. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and to celebrate. Um, we love to honor your name. We love to give you glory. We love to worship you. And we look forward to an, an eternity doing just that. And it is truly mind-blowing to think that uh, in endless ages of praising your name, we will never grow tired of praising you. And in endless ages of plumbing the depths of your grace and your love and your majesty, we will never come to the end of those things. And so we praise you that you are glorious and beautiful and wonderful. And we thank you for the expression of your body, the church, these people uh, to do life with and to grow together and to be challenged together. We pray that you would bless our community this morning as we worship you and we look at your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 1, but just to refresh you, we've been looking at the miraculous nature of the events surrounding the birth and life of Jesus as told by Luke in his gospel. And if you remember two weeks ago, we started by saying that faith does not, be, uh, faith does not mean believing something that is untrue or unbelievable. And then uh, we saw that Luke records all of these incredible events. And in the first couple of verses, he tells us, for the express purpose of helping us see that as miraculous as these things are, they actually happened. Which we should really expect, shouldn't we? I mean, if God is at work in the world, then something incredible taking place to show that he is at work in the world when the spiritual invades the material should not be strange to us. We should expect those kinds of things. And then last week we saw the powerful unbelief of a good man, Zechariah, who was standing in the temple of God speaking to an angel and still managed somehow to fail to trust God. And then along with Zechariah's story came the great news that even when we don't believe that God may be powerful to do something, the purposes of God still succeed. Our unbelief cannot stop that. And if we look at the big picture of scripture with that idea in mind, we see that that's exactly what God did through the nation of Israel. He chose them to be his people, his vehicle for redemption for his salvation purposes, to save the world, save us from sin. But Israel, if we read the Old Testament, was unbelieving, hard-hearted, unfaithful, rebellious. And yet, even in their rebellion and hard-heartedness, they couldn't stop God from accomplishing his purposes of salvation through his chosen people. So we come to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 26 here this morning. And we see that the purposes of God still succeed because through the unbelieving nation Israel, God brings his plan to fruition through the birth of Jesus, our Savior. So let me read these verses for us starting in 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What I think becomes immediately clear here in these verses from Luke is that Jesus is no ordinary man. Luke has recorded for us the events surrounding the birth of Jesus as they actually happened so that we could see the extraordinary nature of Jesus. Okay, now look, before I get into the specifics of that idea this morning, I want to tell you why this is kind of significant, okay? Because I've been hitting on this idea, the, the, the extraordinary nature of the events around Jesus, pretty hard the last couple of weeks. So let me try and explain why I keep bringing it up. Um, I have in my house uh, several pieces of art on my walls. Uh, some of them are beautiful. Some of the, most of them were given to us by, by other people. And uh, I brought one set of artwork for you this morning. This is a series of pictures from my wedding day. You, you may not be able to see it from where you're sitting. And it hangs on the wall in the entry to my house. Okay, If you've been over, maybe you've seen it there. And these are wonderful pictures. You know, We've got our bridal party, the, the moment after we were married. My dad with his big ridiculous grin on his face because he did our ceremony. Uh, you know, Our families side by side. And, and these are pictures that should remind me about this beautiful day when I married the woman of my dreams. But as significant as these pictures are hanging on the entryway of my house, uh, they've been hanging there for so long that I hardly ever even see them anymore. They've become just part of the wall. I look at them every day. It's actually impossible for me to miss these photos. They sit in the hallway between my office and the kitchen and the living room and the stairs. And I probably pass by them 20 times a day at least. And yet I can't tell you the last time that I looked at these pictures and, it, and they actually caught my attention. And I thought about the fact that I married Leanne on this day and these pictures sank in and I really looked at them. And it represents one of the most significant days in my life, if not, well, we'll just say one of the most. Uh, a a life-changing event in my past, and yet the pictures have become so common to me that I don't even see them anymore. And I think sometimes this is what can happen with our faith. It can happen in our relationship with Jesus, where he becomes some of the artwork on the wall of our hearts that just begins to fade into the background. The significance of his life, his words, his death, his resurrection become so trivial that they no longer affect us. They become just sort of this religious thing that we have. And Jesus begins to look normal to us, normal. 
And as such, he then fades into the background of a world that is so filled with things vying for our attention. He becomes insignificant. And so as we look at the miraculous nature of the events surrounding the birth and life of Jesus, I think it's really worth us asking this question as we kind of begin this gospel of Luke. Has Jesus become normal? Is he just normal to us? Has the significance of Jesus faded so much in my own life that he's no longer mind-blowingly extraordinary in my life? Am I so familiar with him that he's become just common? Well, in this passage of scripture in Luke here, Luke shows us a couple of ways in which the life of Jesus was anything but ordinary. And first, we see that Jesus was born to a mother who was a virgin. Okay, let that sink in for just a second. Jesus was born to a mother who was a virgin. Luke says it twice in verse 27. Mary brings it up in verse 34 as this question of how can this be possible? And the angel addresses it again in verse 35 without specifically using that word. And in this one short passage, Luke mentions four times the extraordinary virgin birth of Christ. And Jesus was not conceived in human terms. The birth was brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Mary's life. And Jesus had an earthly mother, but he never had an earthly father. And that cannot be said of any other human being in history. And the whole nature of Jesus as God hangs in the balance of this one idea, I think. Right here in Maricopa, as much as 20% of the population is Mormon, I've heard. One in five people that you interact with. And Mormons actually don't believe that the birth of Jesus was brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. They want us to believe that they're Christian like you and I, but they don't believe in the virgin birth. They believe that God the Father actually has a physical body and that he physically had intercourse with Mary so that Jesus would be conceived. And if that happened, then there is no miracle behind the birth of Jesus. And Jesus is not special. He's just another baby boy born through very natural means. Like you and like me. Like the guy behind the counter at Fry's when you check out. But the Mormons aren't the only ones who deny the virgin birth of Jesus, right? Obviously, secular people deny it. Atheists deny it. Scholars deny it. All kinds of people are deniers in this regard. But shockingly, even some people who call themselves Christians deny this miracle. They think it doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. In a book written several years ago, a very popular author named Rob Bell, who was uh, also a pastor at that point, he's now become a lackey for Oprah Winfrey, Um, he said in this book that if archaeologists were to find definitive proof somehow in Jerusalem that Jesus was uh, the son of an earthly father. He gives him the name Larry just for kicks. An earthly biological father. He says that shouldn't stop us from worshiping Jesus. That shouldn't stop us from being Christians. Now I want you to understand, archaeologists have never found anything in their history of study that contradicts what the Bible tells you. They've never found any evidence contrary to Scripture. And so archaeologists will never find evidence that shows that Jesus had an earthly biological father. 
But if he did have an earthly biological father and was human just like me, you and me, then it absolutely should stop us from worshiping Jesus. Because he's just a man. He's nothing special. He may have been a smart man and a good man, but he's still just a man. And if this part of the story isn't true, then Jesus was really just a nobody. More of nobody than most people because he was a broke homeless dude who wandered around telling people how to be better at life. But Luke assures us in these verses that this is not so. That Jesus is not ordinary. Jesus was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit in a supernatural way. A way that doesn't even compute with our scientific minds. But who cares really, right? I mean, does it really matter that much if we believe this or not? Well, I think it does. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is not just a man, and Jesus is not just God. He is fully both of those things at the same time. And this is one of those things in Christianity that like, makes my head want to explode. We use the word paradox because it's like inexplicable. I can't explain how this works to you. Jesus is God who has always been from before the beginning of time. He always was with God the Father in heaven from eternity past. Always. And in this moment in history, God ordained through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus should enter into our world, eternal God, through supernatural means and take on human flesh, adding a finite physical nature to his eternal divine being. How is it possible? Jesus, who is and always has been fully God, now becomes fully man by the miraculous virgin birth. And it matters in a very important and very practical way. Because if Jesus the man is not fully God, then ultimately he cannot pay for your sins. And if Jesus has not paid for your sins, then you and I, we are still in our sins. Which means that if we die apart from Jesus and his work of saving grace, if he is not God who can pay for our sins, then when we die, we go to hell for all eternity is the consequence of a rebellion against God. The just punishment for sin. So does it matter that Jesus was born to a virgin? Yeah, absolutely. Conceived by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way by the will of God? Yes, it matters. Absolutely. Because that means that in an incredible way, Jesus is fully man, but also fully God. And as one who is fully man and fully God, Jesus in his eternal sinless nature can die on the cross for your sins and declare them paid in full. Which means that you're saved through the work of Jesus, this God-man, born of the Virgin Mary through a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And you're forgiven of your sins because Jesus is God and he can bear the full weight of your sin through his human body and divine nature. And if you give up the virgin birth, then you give up all of what lies at the heart of Christianity. And so this matters, which is why Luke talks about it so much. But Luke doesn't just stop with the virgin birth in talking to Mary He continues as he talks to her to show us 
the extraordinary nature of Jesus. In verse 32, he further develops the idea of the nature of Christ. And Gabriel the angel says, He, Jesus, will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. God doesn't want us to misunderstand this important point, so the angel proclaims the true identity of this child, and Luke then records these details in his gospel. Jesus was born to Mary in the flesh, but he has always been the son of the Most High God. And here too, in the nature of Jesus, I think that we could be tempted to make a grave mistake We may overemphasize the human birth of Jesus. We may wonder at his incarnation, which is what we usually do every Christmas time, right? We allow ourselves to be captivated by this idea of God wrapping himself in flesh. And we could fall into that so much so that we begin to see Jesus as mostly man or as primarily man. But Jesus was not primarily man, nor was he primarily God. He was 100%, he is 100% man and 100% God. Again, one of those things you're like, come on, that's 200%, that's not possible. Well, it is possible with God. And here again, we might ask the question, does it really matter? I mean, if I overemphasize the humanity of Jesus, does it really make a difference in my daily life? And yeah, again, I would say absolutely. Because our secular culture, for the most part, actually really likes Jesus. There's very few people out there who dislike Jesus. They just love to see him on the same plane as a guy like Gandhi or a guy like uh, Nelson Mandela a social reformer with some really good wisdom on how to live life well and how to kind of have love towards all people. But that's not what the Bible tells us. Jesus was not merely a social reformer. He was not primarily a man. Jesus is the son of the most high God and of his kingdom there will be no end. And when God became man in Jesus Christ, he did not for a second become anything less than God. He was always still God. He did not abandon, reduce, or contract his divine functions that he has always had since the beginning of time. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you want to consider how incredible that idea is, try this little exercise sometime, okay? You can try it this week. Imagine a little world in your mind. Maybe it's Pluto-esque. Okay, a small, cute, fuzzy little planet that's lovable to you. Now, try and put a dozen people on that planet in your mind with names and faces and kind of a backstory. Already, it it begins to get difficult. Maybe six is more than enough, right? But put some people on this planet. Imagine their faces, their names. And then try this. Try and go through an entire day keeping that little planet with its cute 12 little people in your mind somewhere as you're going about your daily activities. You wouldn't even last five minutes. Okay, It's a silly exercise, but I I tried it. I can't even think of 12 people to put on the planet. That's hard enough. 
But scripture tells us that while Jesus lived and walked and loved on people simultaneously as he did all of those things, he kept the universe in existence by the word of his power, by his sheer will. And if at any moment during his existence he had become distracted from that task, the universe as you and I know it would have disappeared from existence. While Jesus was doing all of the incredible things that he was doing as a man that we find recorded in scripture, he never ceased to do all of the incredible things that he did as God from time eternal. Colossians 1.9 says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so while Jesus was here in the flesh, somehow mysteriously and miraculously, all of the fullness of God was found in him, dwelt in him, who was and is and is to come. And yet, and yet, Jesus emptied himself of all of the fullness of his glory and he laid aside his blinding beauty so that he could become poor for your sake and my sake. He laid it all aside to become a peasant carpenter, a homeless man, dying the lowly death of a criminal at the hands of politically corrupt people. God. And yet in all of that, in his humility, in the laying aside of his glory, Jesus never ceased to be who the angel declared him to be, the son of the most high God whose kingdom will never end. Okay, now we've established the extraordinary nature of Jesus, I think, to some degree. So I think we're now maybe ready to address kind of two problems that we often have with the miraculous nature of Jesus. Two mistakes that we sometimes make on kind of the far spectrums or the far sides of the spectrum of his nature. And first, maybe you're here this morning and the Jesus that you worship is too much God. And what I mean by that is he's powerful, he is mighty, he is king of kings and lord of lords. But he's so distant from you in his power and divine nature that you don't know him personally. He's so much God in your mind that he's not your friend, he's not your brother, and he's not near like scripture says he is. He has all power and authority, but you wrongly view Jesus as more God than he is man, so you don't know him in any sort of intimate way. You know his power, but not his love in your life. And Luke tells us that our infinite God has taken on flesh, which means he knows what it means to suffer like you suffer. He knows how it feels to shed bitter tears. He knows the pain of loss and sadness. He knows the anxiety of what, lay, what lies ahead as a human. He knows the struggle of temptation. He has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And he knows what it's like to be burdened and weary as a human because Jesus was fully man. Now he did it perfectly because he was also fully God. But if your Jesus is too much God, then maybe at some point this morning, you just need to take a moment, maybe when the worship team returns back up to the stage, and you just need to ask this God who is infinitely powerful 
to come and be near to you. Ask him to break down the walls that make him distant and unapproachable. Ask him to come close and refresh your spirit through his presence intimately at work in your heart. And I think sometimes when God feels distant in our lives, the reason is because we've forgotten this truth that eternal, holy, perfect God, because he desired to be with us, crossed the chasm of sin that we had created to rescue us. And the solution to our feeling distant is to draw near to Jesus who came to reveal God to us, who came for the forgiveness of our sins. And we pour out our hearts in worship to him because the love of God has been manifested through Christ in a tangible way. Now that's one extreme. You may be on the other extreme. Maybe you err on the other side of the spectrum and your Jesus is way too much man. He's too much like you. You pray to him, but all you see is really his human nature. And so your prayers are weak. Jesus is a nice guy and he's a smart guy and he's a good guy, but he's just a guy in your mind. He's almost so near that you've become... Uh, confused. You've projected your frail humanity onto him and you have reduced his divine nature to merely human. And so in your mind, Jesus is nice and you like him, but he's powerless to actually do anything in your life. And you wonder why when you pray to him, nothing changes. And I think it may be because you have no fear of him as son of the most high God. And I want to encourage you, maybe if you're on that side of the spectrum this morning, to repent of believing in these lies about the nature of Christ so that you can experience the fullness of the power of God available to you in Christ Jesus, sovereign Lord of all creation. He is the one through whom all things derive their being. Jesus, our glorious Lord and Savior, who even now is in the process of trampling the head of Satan and putting all of his enemies under his feet as a footrest. And this is Jesus, born through the eternal power of the Holy Spirit by the will of God. Jesus, Son of the Most High, who owns and rules all things in this earth and in the heavens above. And if your Jesus is too much human, then I think at some point, too, I want to challenge you this morning, maybe when our worship team comes back up, to take a moment and pray. Pray that God would open the eyes of your heart to the power and glory of this Jesus who is fully God. And Luke wants us to see that Jesus is anything but ordinary. He is exceptional in every way. The angel reminds us one last time in verse 37 that Jesus was no ordinary man. He says to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. The angel is talking specifically about God's ability to overcome the barren womb of Elizabeth and God's power to uh, allow Mary, a virgin, to conceive of the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah. But what the angel says has far-reaching implications that go way beyond the immediate circumstances of childbirth here. The miraculous birth of Christ may seem like a small thing, 
I'm sorry, may seem like a big thing, but it is, in fact, a small thing compared to the miraculous death and resurrection of Christ. And I think there's something of a prophecy in these words of the angel. He uses the future tense, for nothing will be impossible with God. Which means I don't think that he's talking about the impossible nature of the birth of Jesus or John the Baptist. At least he's not talking exclusively about those ideas. I think the most impossible thing that Jesus makes possible is the defeat of sin and resurrection from the dead. And the most miraculous work of Christ, the most extraordinary thing about his life, is actually found in his death. And if we go way back to the beginning of human history, what we find is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from the presence of God. And in addition to being cast out from the holy presence of God because of their defiled, sinful state, they brought condemnation for their sin upon humanity. And for their treachery and their disobedience to God's will, all humans through all of history have died, do die, will die. And it's impossible to overcome death. Apart from Elijah and Enoch in the Bible, every human being in all of history has died. And all who are to come will die. Even Jesus died. But this is where, again, we see that Jesus was no ordinary man, for nothing is impossible with God. And after Jesus died, he was raised to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the most impossible thing, victory over death, the inconquerable enemy of humanity, Jesus accomplished through the power of God. For nothing is impossible with God. And Jesus, in his death and resurrection, he made a way for humanity to be restored to a right relationship with God. And through this nature, as both fully God and fully man, Jesus did in the flesh, by the power of God, what was impossible for man. And so I want you to see that our access to God is through Christ, who made a way for us. And you and I too can do the impossible through Jesus. We can't fly, we can't teleport through time, not those kinds of impossible things, but something even more impossible still. Specifically, through Christ, we can come to God with our sins forgiven and we can live in relationship with him because this miraculous man, Jesus, has defeated sin and death and revealed God to us. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this incredible truth about the nature of your son, Jesus. That he was born to a virgin, Mary. That he was not just a man and he was not just a God, but in some unbelievable, paradoxical way that we cannot comprehend. In some mind-blowingly God-glorifying way, your son was both fully God and fully man. And we thank you that in this nature that he had as both God and man completely, that he was able to bridge this chasm of sin and death and restore humanity to a right relationship with you. Offer us hope through repentance. 
to know you as eternal God again in an intimate way. And God, I pray that if there are people in this room who see Jesus as too much man, that you would open their eyes to his divine power. That they would begin to see the miraculous work of Christ in their lives. And God, if there are any in this room who see you as, or see Jesus as too much God, would you show them your nearness through your son, Jesus? Would you open their eyes to your closeness to them, your compassion, the intimacy of relationship with you through him? And we worship you for these things this morning, Father, that your son, Christ, came to save us as both fully God and fully man, and we honor him. Amen.